The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Everybody's in a really social mood this morning, so it's good for Memorial Day weekend. I'm trying to find a spot where these lights aren't blinding me, but we'll see if that works or not. Uh, So I want to introduce myself. My name is Bob Phillips. I'm one of the elders here at the church. Uh, Been here for quite a while. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Wanted to come up here and set up the giving portion of the service. Want to remind you that this is for people who call Story City home. As our guest, we appreciate you being here, and we don't want you to feel compelled to give. Um, There are four ways to give. You can text a dollar amount to 84321. You can go online at storycitychurch.com slash giving. You can mail it to 320 East Angelino Avenue, Burbank, 91502. Or there is a giving box for those of you who want to. There's envelopes in the back of the seats. There's a giving box right by the back doors there that you can give to or that you can drop your checks in or or cash or envelopes. Uh, I wanted to read a quick verse here about giving. And I'm going to go to a book that probably many of us haven't heard preached in church. Uh, and, and I think there's a reason for it why. It's, it's Malachi. Uh, Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. The interesting thing about that verse is the whole book of Malachi is God chastising the people of Israel for turning their backs on him uh, through the prophet Malachi. And right before this, he tells him, you've turned away from me, you've robbed me by not giving. And he says, test me in this. Bring your gifts to the storehouse and see if I don't meet your needs. Now, the key there is needs, not wants. He's not promising us a Cadillac. He's not promising us a mansion on the hill. But he's saying that if we we honor him, he will meet our needs. Uh, So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the blessings you've given us, Father. We thank you for this opportunity to return a portion of that to you, Father, with the realization that none of it belongs to us. This is your world. This is your creation. And you've just put us as stewards over it. So, Father, now as we go into this time of study and worship, I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would grant us your, your, your blessings, and that uh, you would show us what it is you would have us to hear. First in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. I don't think Satan wanted the Word of God heard this morning. We're going to preach it anyways. Uh, my name is Tyler. <laughs> uh, this is a bittersweet morning for me and my family. Uh, we've been at Story City for six and a half years. Moved out here the first week of January 2015, and somebody's chopping onions in here right now. Um, I just love this church and uh, thankful for this last opportunity to open God's Word. Um, So it's a unique morning in a sense, but in a sense it's not unique because uh, the purpose of what I'm about to do and what happens on this stage every week doesn't change. It's to lift Jesus up as Lord. It's to proclaim who He is. It's to say that He is good. It's to say that life is best lived under his kingship, under his lordship. It's to say that the only way to have your sins forgiven is to come to him through faith and repentance. 
So that's what I'm going to do. Jesus said uh, that he came that we would have life and have it to the full in John 10. And he proved that he wanted to give life, not take it away. Not just through a perfect life lived, but through an unjust death where he died for your sin and mine in our place and resurrected in glory, something that actually happened, not a fairy tale this morning. He proved that he's good. He proved that he wants to lead us to life. He proved that he wants what's best for us. And he's proven that there's no other name under heaven through which you can be saved and I can be saved when this little piece of flesh in our chest called our heart stops beating, which is a real moment coming for all of us. So what I want to do is look at John 15 and talk about being connected to Jesus, abiding in Jesus, belonging to Jesus. Jared graciously said, it's your last Sunday, take a break from the series if you want, choose your text. And, and this, is a, this is a text that's close to my heart. It's been a formative text in my life, and I just pray God uses it this morning in yours. So let's start, John 15, 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Uh, it's not going to be on the screen, but my first point this morning is this, Jesus is Lord. Amen. Jesus is Lord over creation. Where am I getting that from? I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Well, Jesus was speaking to his disciples in John 15, just after the upper room discourse where Judas betrayed him, and he uh, loved his disciples to the end, the text says. And he starts with these words, I am the true vine. Uh, and his disciples, who were his original crowd, would have heard something in that that you or I might miss. You see, I am is a pretty important phrase in Jewish culture and tradition. You may know why, you may not. Uh, Moses, in Exodus 3, when he encountered God in the burning bush, he's like, God says, hey, I'm going to send you on a journey to rescue my people. And Moses is like, no, I'm cool, thanks. I don't want to do that. And God's like, no, I'll be with you, so go. And he's like, well, who should I tell people you are, God? There's this dude, Pharaoh. Who should I tell Pharaoh that you are, God? And God's like, oh, tell that dude I am. Tell him my name is I am. I am that I am. What does that mean? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird thing to say, right? I think it's actually kind of the ultimate humble brag. <laughs> it's like, God could have gone, well, tell him my name is eternally existent God who's self-sustaining, that I'm the uncaused cause, that I'm the first and final word, the unilateral authority over creation, and that I get to say what goes and what doesn't go because I made the rules and I'm God. But he just says, just tell him I am. <laughs> I am. It's kind of like a one-up on Thanos. Like Thanos said, I am inevitable, right? Like, this is like, no, I just am. I'm not even inevitable. It's another, in another sense, what he's saying here, what, what God is saying here is, you'll know me by what I do. I am what I am. Like, you're going to see my character, Moses. I'm about to do some awesome things. I'm about to, like, turn the Nile to blood, send locusts, lead your people through the Red Sea, crush the enemy, lead you into a promised land. When you see mercy, when you see grace, when you see forgiveness, when you see goodness, you're seeing me, and I am the truest essence of those things. I am what I do. And Jesus is vamping on this thread. Jesus makes seven I am statements in the book of John, and every single one of them is a full and outright claim to divinity, to equality with Yahweh. He's saying, I am that I am. The same God that Moses met at the burning bush, that's me. 
It's a pretty bold claim for a Middle Eastern carpenter of humble origins. And Isaiah 53 says literally that he wasn't very good looking or charismatic. Like nobody's thinking much of Jesus. And he's saying, well, actually, I made everything. I am. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of you and me right now, whether we acknowledge it or not. It's just the truth. I don't know who you think Jesus is this morning. I think we probably have the full range of people in here. You may be a skeptic, a thoughtful person, a thinker, and you have legitimate questions, and you hear me saying all this, and you're like, well, I've got bigger questions than you're going to address in your cute 30-minute sermon, Pastor. You may be generally unengaged, and I just don't want to think about it. I'm just going to live my life. You may think Jesus was a good teacher or a prophet, on par with Gandhi or Muhammad. You may think that he's just a fairy tale, like the grown-up's version of Santa Claus, like Santa Claus for grown-ups. I don't know who you think Jesus was. You may believe he's Lord. But I will tell you that Jesus knew who he was. I will tell you that if you thoughtfully consider the historical evidence and consider his life and the historically documented reality of his resurrection from the grave, the only person that's ever died and then lived again and said, hey, I'm going to have some fish with you, disciples, and show you the holes in my hands. I'm a real human being, but I can walk through walls, and I'm awesome. Jesus says he's God. He said in John 10, 30, I and my father are one. He said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am it was a claim to divinity, to divinity so clear for his Jewish listeners that they tried to stone him for blasphemy. There was no mincing of words here. He said in John 14, 6, no man comes to the Father but through me. He said in John 8, 24, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. These are things Jesus said about himself. So this whole concept that some of us carry around, well, he was just a good guy, right? It doesn't really work when he claimed these things about himself, right? C.S. Lewis talked about this. He said, you can think a lot of things about Jesus, but you can't have like a mushy middle stance and just say, well, he was a good guy or a good teacher because just good guys and don't teachers and good teachers don't claim they're divine. Like if I all of a sudden derailed in my sermon right now and said, by the way, I'm God. I think y'all should know that before I head. I was God the whole time. You guys would probably have some responses. But I don't think anyone would be like, oh, he's a good guy. <laughs> right? So I think that we need to make our minds up about Jesus this morning. Either Jesus is who he said he was. He's Lord of all creation. He's God incarnate, put on humble human flesh to come and save us from our sins. He is who he said he was, or he's someone to be rejected and resisted outright as a liar, as a crazy person. So a good place to start this morning, who do you say Jesus is? Who is he to you? Is he Lord or is he a liar? He continues on from this I am idea and he says, I'm the true vine. I'm the true vine. Uh, I'm going to try to do this quickly, but just a little legwork here. The first thing the disciples would have heard when he said, I'm the true vine, is something I guarantee you none of us would think. But he's, he's actually juxtaposing himself up against the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is doing in this moment. See, the nation of Israel was described in Isaiah 5, Psalm 80, all sorts of places in the New Testament as a vine that God planted and watered and cared for and tended. It was his chosen people, his nation, meant to be his representative on earth. The way that 
people would connect to God. That was supposed to be Israel in the Old Testament, but the whole Old Testament is the long, painful story of Israel failing to keep God's commandments. God gave them his law that they might be his representative to the other nations, be distinct by obeying his good rules for living. And the whole Old Testament is Israel totally failing and punting on that and not doing it. And so in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, God describes Israel, this country, as a corrupted vine that bore worthless grapes. And so when Jesus calls himself the true vine to his Jewish audience, his disciples, Jesus is saying, hey, what Israel failed to do, I'm going to do. I've come to accomplish and fulfill the law perfectly, to be God's representative, and to become a true means of connection to God the Father, who in his holiness cannot be otherwise approached by sinful human beings. And this isn't just for a nation. This isn't just for Israel anymore in me. It's for anyone who'd surrender by faith through repentance, leaning into my grace and what I'm about to do on the cross. Anyone can be a part of the family of God now through faith. Anyone can abide and have God's life flowing in them through faith. He says this. This is what he's saying when he says he's the true vine. I'm the true means of connection to the life of God. I'm the true means of connection to God's vibrancy, to God's vitality, to a life that isn't lived in meandering and meaninglessness and pursuit of pleasure and then ends. I'm the connection to something deeper, to eternal life. And in verse 2, Jesus extends his metaphor and says, I'm not just a vine, but my Father First person of the Trinity, second person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit being the third. He's saying, my father, he tends to the vine. He's the gardener. I'm surrendered to him. He watches over me. And you all, your branches attached to me, drawing life from me. My father's the gardener of the vine. And I like this as simple. He says, the father does two things as the gardener. And it's simple. I like simple things. The first thing, as the gardener, God removes fruitless branches from the vine. John 15, 2, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. So God removes fruitless branches from the vine. So here's a question that begs, a pretty important one. How do I know that I'm attached to the true vine? How do I know that God's life is flowing in me? How do I know that I have that vitality, that vibrancy? Well, apparently fruit is a pretty important thing to God. He's removing fruitless vines. He's pruning fruitful vines. He's all about fruit. So the way that we can know and be assured that we're connected to the vine and have the life of God flowing through us is that we bear fruit. It's a good diagnostic to run. Am I bearing fruit? Jesus said this simply in Matthew 7, 18 through 20. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Okay, so I'm testing myself. I'm looking for fruit. But uh, what kind of fruit am I looking for? What does the fruit look like? How do I know uh, that I'm, I'm growing fruit? What is fruit? It sounds important to God. Well, uh, 
lean on the word of God for this again, the fruit of the spirit and the fruits of the natural desires, the flesh are the, the, just the life that we have apart from the spirit of God working in us and changing us are outlined in Galatians 5, 19 through 25. I just want to read this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? (laughs) I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but... The fruit of the Spirit, here it is, is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You know, as hard as it can be, A good, honest self-examination is a helpful and necessary thing from time to time. I have to know where I'm standing to take a realistic step forward. I have to know where I'm standing to begin to progress. So I just, me and you, I'm doing this with you. Let's examine ourselves this morning. Are we marked by the fruit of the Spirit? Are we in step with the Spirit? He's moving. The Spirit is in a stride. Are we walking step step by step with the Spirit or not? Or is our life marked by discord, jealousy, rage, all those other things in Galatians 5? It's good, but I do want to make one clarification on this because I don't want us to get too far off track here. Fruit's important, but you are not saved by your fruit. You are not saved by your fruit. Christians bear fruit because they are saved. Christians bear fruit because the life of Jesus is flowing through them. And something that miraculous and that powerful doesn't lie dormant in us. Things start happening inside of us that wouldn't otherwise be happening. Fruit starts budding up. And that's not our work. That's the work of God in us and through us. So we don't trust in our fruit for our salvation. But it's a helpful diagnostic sometimes to look and go, what kind of fruit am I bearing? Am I abiding in the vine? Is the vine's life flowing through me right now? Am I staying attached? Is God's work happening in my life right now? but we don't trust in our sanctification for our salvation. Sanctification is God's work of making us holy. We don't trust in that for our salvation. We trust in the finished work of Jesus, our justification, the legal declaration that we're right with God because of what Jesus did for our salvation. That's, what, that's our standing before God. That's an important clarification here because I know this is hard. But I do want to love us enough and love me enough to say what the Bible is actually saying here. And it's saying, Jesus is saying, if there's no love for God at all in your life, if there's no affection for Jesus at all in your life, if there's no repentance whatsoever in your life, no conviction over sin whatsoever, the Bible is saying that's a red flag that you might not be connected to the vine. And it doesn't matter if you go to church. 
It doesn't matter if you try not to cuss. It doesn't matter if you try to be good. Those aren't the things we measure here. The question is, are we connected to the vine? And is the life of God flowing in us, bearing fruit? And I'm not talking about perfection here. We're never perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. We're not measuring ourselves and testing ourselves for perfection. What we are testing ourselves for and measuring in ourselves is direction. Is the trajectory of my life Godward? Or is it stagnant completely or moving away from God? Does his reality hold any sway over my daily choices? Do I ever think about God? I can think somebody in the room might be tempted in this moment to go, "Mm, Pastor, that's good. I hope Billy's listening. (laughs) Right? I hope Jane is tuned in right now because she needs this. Mm -mm. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Test yourself. Test yourself. That's what Jesus wants us to do. So the first thing God does is he cuts off branches that don't bear fruit. So I just want to say to you, if you, if you think about that test right now and you're going, I don't, maybe there's two things happening. There's one of two things happening. Either you're going, yeah, I don't buy what you're saying anyway, so I don't really care. That's okay if that's where you're at. Or maybe you're going, you know, I'm a church person, but I don't see a lot of fruit in my life and I'm a little scared right now. I just want to tell you right now, Jesus is waiting. (laughs) Grace is waiting. Acceptance is waiting. All you have to do is bring yourself to Jesus, lay yourself down at his feet, confess your need and be brought in. And through faith, the life of God will start flowing through you. So will you come to Jesus this morning? Secondly, the garden, God, the gardener, prunes fruitful branches. He prunes fruitful branches to make them more fruitful. And I thought the first one was hard. You know, I dreamed of doing like a Eugene Peterson kind of Tyler Miller, the message translation on this verse so that it would say something different. Like, and when you finally, when you do, when you do bear fruit, you get brought up on stage by God. He gives you a medal. He gives you a vacation and says, good job bearing fruit. He gives you a pat on the back, maybe a hug. That's not what it says. You know what it says? It says when you bear fruit, which is the goal of the Christian life, you get pruned. Congratulations. You bore fruit. You're now qualified to suffer. Yay. For any green thumbs in the room, and I'm not one, I spent $100 at Lowe's a summer ago to try to make my front yard look better, and every single plant is dead. (laughs) For any green thumbs in the room, you know that pruning is an ugly, counterintuitive process. I'm thinking of you, Jenny. Jenny Jenny knows plants. (laughs) Um, When you prune a plant, here's what you're doing. You're strategically removing unwanted, unhealthy branches and limbs from the plant in order to improve the plant's structure, in order to create room for new growth, for healthier growth, so that the plant can flourish in the future. But it's counterintuitive because when you do it, it looks like the plant's in bad shape. looks like you're taking something away from the plant. The honest best way to say this is that certain things in the plant have to die so that it can grow. They have to die. It's counterintuitive. It's life out of death. 
I think there's something about that somewhere else in the Bible. Somebody died and came back or something. I, I can't remember. <laughs> to the untrained eye, it looks like the gardener is literally sabotaging the plant when he prunes it. That's what it looks like. If you're ignorant of gardening and botany, when you see a pruned plant, you go, what did you do to that tree? We have some rose bushes in our front yard that have survived my ownership of our house, somehow miraculously. And uh, every year, the gardeners that tend to our front lawn come and they cut those rose bushes down to literally their stems. And I walk out every year at some point and I think, what did they do to our rose bushes? I forget every time. Like, it's literally like just a nub. And then I walk out a month or two later, the stems are back, beautiful, ripe, lush roses on the stems. They've been pruned and they've grown again. When we are fruitful in the Lord, and to say that we are fruitful in the Lord is to simply say that when we are alive in Jesus, when his life is flowing through us, when we're connected to him, we can expect pruning. God uses trials. He uses pain. He uses his word, which Hebrews 4.12 says is a literal knife. It's a double-edged sword. It exposes us, and it cuts us down, and it shows us areas of our character that are out of order and not in line with God's goodwill and pleasure, and his word starts working in us. It prunes us, and he's cutting off unwanted limbs. He's cutting off branches. He's cutting off flaws of character so that we can grow to bear more fruit. I'm not making this up. Romans 5, 3 through 4 literally lists the process. We boast in our afflictions and our pruning because we know that that pruning, that affliction produces endurance and that endurance produces character and that character produces hope. I wish it wasn't so, but this is just the reality of the Christian life. You die and you're born again. The pattern that produces growth in the Christian life is the path Jesus himself walked and was glorified through. It's a pattern of death and resurrection. Uh, if you're in Christ, you're literally going to die and be resurrected again. It's the meta-narrative of our lives. We will die. We will be raised again. But it's also the micro-narrative of every week, month, year of your life. We live little deaths and resurrections all the time as God forms us into something more glorious and beautiful through the work of sanctification. But lest you think God's a cruel taskmaster, listen to this first. So there's a dear family in our life that is suffering right now. And uh, my friend shared that this has been the verse that he's been meditating on through their suffering. Romans 5, 3 through 4. Not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance, endurance. Oh, I'm reading the wrong verse. I'm sorry. 1 Peter 5.10. This is the verse he's actually meditating on. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered a little while. I love the himself in that verse. God's like, I'm about your restoration. I'm going to restore you from whatever you're going through. And I'm not going to let... I'm not going to let anyone else do it. That's my job. I'm the one who restores you. I'm the one who does that. Yes, I prune you, but I'm not after your pruning. I'm after your restoration. I'm after your growth. I'm after your future glory. I'm after your joy in me. I'm after you having a clearer vision of who I am than you have right now. 
God's going to restore you. God is going to lift you up. That's his end game. He's going to do it himself. So if you're feeling trimmed down right now, and you know what? To live is to suffer. Life is full of suffering. Everybody in this room is experiencing a trial on some level. Listen to me. That's got an expiration date in your life. That's got an expiration date in your life. God's going to restore you. Wait on him. He will lift you out of that muddy pit. He will lift you out of the slime. He will set your feet on the rock. He will put a new song in your mouth. He will fill you with joy in his presence. Jesus continues, John 15, 3 through 5. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. So in verse 3, Jesus says to his disciples uh, as they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem. They're headed from the upper room uh, where, again, where he did his final time with his disciples and they're walking to Gethsemane where he will pray and sweat blood and his disciples will sleep on him and not be a support to him. And he's walking and he's intimate and he says to them, listen, you've spent three years with me. You've heard my words. You've watched my teaching, my way of life. I've been your rabbi. You've been my students. My word has washed you. My word has made you clean. You're already clean. And it's interesting. At this point, Jesus doesn't have 12 disciples. He actually has 11 because it, in, in John 13, Judas is revealed as the disciple who would betray Jesus as a dead branch that never had the life of Jesus flowing through him. And so he's gone. And so to his 11 faithful disciples who would bear fruit, who would go to their death for him, who would all be martyred for him, he says, you've been washed by my word. You're clean already. You're clean. But listen to me. You've got to remain in my word for this to work. It doesn't matter. You can't get by on yesterday's intimacy with me. You cannot get by. You can't live the Christian life on yesterday's intimacy with me or on what I did in your life last year. You've got to stay connected. You've got to abide. You've got to remain. The Christian life is a life of remaining in Jesus. That's what it is. It's a life of remaining in Jesus. To remain means to abide it means to sink your roots down and not budge. I want to put a picture up. Can we do that? One, two. This is the Ever Given. <laughs> Stuck in the Suez Canal. Did you guys hear about this? Disrupted global trade in billions of dollars. Billions and billions of dollars. Was stuck for four, five, six, seven days. I can't remember. That little tractor is not going to dig that ship out. <laughs> it's not. It could try for a long time. That ship is abiding. <laughs> it's remaining. That's a picture of what we're supposed to be like in Christ. That tractor should represent this world. It should represent Netflix. It should represent our phones. It should represent every distraction that wants to pull us from Christ. This is what our lives should look like. Our lives should be settled. Settled in to Jesus. Not moving. Not budging. This is my life source. I'm not going anywhere. I'm remaining with Jesus. 
to remain in Jesus, <laughs> to abide in his word, I'm going to get a little prescript- prescriptive here for a moment. You have to establish daily rhythms and habits that keep you in his word and his word in you. So I want to make myself very vulnerable for a moment and attempt to do some math in front of you. I was a horrible math student, still am. Um, you, probably have, you probably have a screen time on your iPhone, a lot of you. So you get a little message. Most, I get them on Sunday that tells you how many, that shames you publicly. Like if anyone, it's like, you spent this many hours on your phone this week. Really? I'm going to turn this function off. Uh, so let's just say, but let's combine it. Let's say, you know, Netflix, TV, laptop, screen time. How much screen time do you have a day in your life? I'll keep my number private. You can keep yours private. <laughs> but let's just pick a nice round number, three hours. But let's say it's double time if you're on your phone while watching TV. That like counts as two times. But let's say you spend three hours a day on your phone or watching Netflix or whatever it is, whatever app. For many of us in the room, that's probably way too high. For a lot of us, it's probably way too low. If you spend three hours a day on your phone for a year, you know how many days a year you're staring at your phone without stopping? 46. 46 days out of 365 staring at your phone. If you do that, if you perpetuate that habit out over 50 years, You've spent 6.25 years staring at your phone, ingesting whatever it is you're looking at on your phone. By comparison, if you spend 15 minutes every other day, 15 minutes every other day, which is, again, probably less than a lot of us, probably a lot more than a lot of us, in God's Word, if you do that for a year, you will have spent, carry the two, 52 hours ingesting God's word, truth, into your life. If you do that for 50 years habitually, you will have spent 108 days or 0.29 years ingesting God's word into your life. That's 0.29 years of truth, 6.25 years of whatever it is you're staring at on your phone, and I am. I'm just going to be honest with you guys, I am convicted by this. Like, the reason I'm saying this is because I stink at this. And I'm up here preaching. It's prescriptive, but I'm telling you, we're not going to know Jesus the way we want to know Jesus if we're not giving him more time than whatever else has got your attention. Like, the way you build a relationship is by spending time with someone. And the way you spend time with Jesus is by praying, journaling, with a good cup of coffee or tea if you're that kind of person. I'm sorry. <laughs> In the same place, every day, surrendered, meditating on the Word of God and letting it soak into your pores. You ever heard the phrase, you are what you eat? <laughs> That's true. What we consume and fill our brains with will form our character and our thinking, and it's impossible to remain in and be formed by the true vine if you're b- abiding in other false vines. But listen to me, the Word of God is so powerful that it can break through into our lives, even when we're not giving it time. Just give it a chance. It's so potent. This is my friend, uh, Pastor John Kelly. i put one more picture up. I did ministry with John 
uh, in Chicago for three years. John's got an insane story that testifies to the power of Scripture and abiding in Jesus. John currently is a pastor in West Chicago. Uh, He was raised in a rough neighborhood in Philadelphia, and at the age of 19, he was a lost young man, and he was in the act of robbing a house with some of his friends, and one of his friends shot and killed a young man. And so John was convicted of third-degree murder, and he was incarcerated at the age of 19. When he got to prison, it was overcrowded, so he was put into solitary confinement because they had nowhere else to put him. And he was bored to tears, understandably so, and so he asked the guard, hey, you got anything I can do, something I can read? Maybe a Sudoku? What do you got? And the guard said, I got a Bible. <laughs> and in solitary confinement, John started reading the Bible because he had nowhere else to be, nothing else to do, no TV to turn on. Just him, his thoughts, his mistake, and his Bible. And John, I'll never forget, we sat on Lake Michigan looking out over the water when he told me this story. He'd never read the Bible before at 19, and he started reading. And he kept reading, you know, and then he kept reading. Finished the Old Testament kept reading, got through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And around the time as he tells it that he hit Hebrews, he started weeping in his cell. Struck by the gravity of his own unworthiness and his sin and his need for a savior. And the word of God alone led him to lay his life down on the altar in that prison cell with no one to exposit it, no one to preach it, no one to dress it up with lights or a fog machine, just him and the word of God. And he gave his life to Jesus and he was attached to the vine and he immediately started bearing fruit with the prison guards. And then when he got out, his life was radically different forever. I want to read this is from an article, but John's one of the most fruitful guys I know. This is his words. God instilled in my heart the need to repent and seek forgiveness through his word. After getting out of prison, I spoke with the family immediately of the man I had harmed. I had played a part in the death of someone that they loved, and I wanted to make things right. Then, together, supported by my church, I overcame the guilt and shame of what had happened and found a new way forward. Today, I'm 38, and I'm a pastor and preacher of God's word. When I first felt God's word stirring in my heart, everything changed. In spite of my sin, the Lord reached out to me and gave me a new life, a new heart. I was oppressed by the weight of my sin and guilt, but God set me free to sing his praises and live for his witness. It may sound incredible, but I don't really think my story is special. At its heart, my story is just the story of the Bible told in my life by Christ working in me through his word and now through me. It's the story of sin. It's the story of redemption. It's a story of second chances. Has this happened in your life? Is the word of God living and active in your life? Are you attached to the vine? John's story is my story. I never went to prison. I never did anything, but I can tell you, I was in seventh grade, and I remember it forever. The first time I felt the Spirit of God moving in my life, and I got in the car with my mom after this thing at school, and 
I said, Mom, I don't really know what was going on, but I, I experienced God today. I don't really know what that means. And that's the first experience I ever remember having with God. And then over the years, the word of God took root in my heart. And then God called me into ministry. He saved my family. He transformed my dad out of addiction and set my dad on a new career path to be a pastor. My brothers in ministry, this is God's work in my family. It's repentance. It's faith. It's a new center of life. It's fruit. And it's stumbling forward with Jesus by grace until glory. And so my closing prayer for you, for this church that I love, is that you would simply believe the good news that Jesus died for sinners. And that when you come to him by faith, you get a new heart, you get a new life, you get a new center that your life radiates out from and you get freed from living for the things that enslave people and crush them and leave them worse off than they were the day before. To know Jesus is to know life and I pray that you'll wise up, that we'll wise up and realize it now before we have to suffer another 10 years of living foolishly. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn to Jesus. I love you, church, very much. For those of you that are new and this is the first time you're hearing me preach, I love you. <laughs> For those of you that have been here my whole six years, I love you. Jesus is life. He's good. He's worth following. Abide in him. I'll try to do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy, your grace. Thank you for your son. We talked a lot this morning about what we need to do to know you, God, but the last note I want to leave on is what you've done to know us. You went to infinite lengths to know us, Lord, to save us. Salvation is your work. Salvation is your gift. Salvation is a free gift through Jesus Christ. So we come to you this morning for new life, to abide in the vine. Have your way in this place this morning now as we sing together in Jesus' name. Amen.